This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. All right, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 18, please. John chapter 18, let's stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Beginning, please, with verse 33. It says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered me un- thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom uh, from hence. And Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. This cause was I born, for this cause came into the world that I should bear witness of the truth, and everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Thank you very much. You may be seated. As you go down through history, scarcely will you find that anybody's life has been changed by a brief conversation. But I believe it was true in the life of Pontius Pilate. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that Pilate was saved. I don't know that. But I believe that he was never the same after this conversation. I believe it haunted him until the day of his death. The 4th century historian Eusebius said that Pilate was forced to commit suicide becoming his own murderer and executioner. Uh, The one report says that he threw himself in the Rhone River near Vienne, France. And there is a monument in the center of the city that is known as Pilate's tomb. Another report says that he hurled himself in a lake in Lausanne, Switzerland. And uh, there is a mountain named in his memory, Mount Pilatus. But I like this. One report says that he and his wife Claudia were born again, and they died a martyr's death. The Ethiopian and the Christian churches venerate him as a martyr. I hope that's true. But regardless, whether or not he was saved, I believe that he was never the same since that brief conversation with Jesus Christ. And in that conversation, he asked the most philosophical question of the ages, three words, what is truth? Most philosophers have lived trying to answer that question, and most of them took their philosophies to the grave. Ladies and gentlemen, my brother, Billy Comfort, some of you know Billy, he pastored here in the Chesapeake area, 
But Billy had three uh, doctor's degrees, earned doctor's degrees. One was a PhD from Oxford University in England. And he told me that he was in a modular class for three weeks in Dayton, Tennessee with a professor from Oxford University. And so for three weeks from nine o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night, my brother was taught by this professor. But the last thing that the professor said was this. He said, now young people, I have spent three weeks giving you all of this knowledge. But he said, the truth of the matter is, you can't know anything for sure. Wouldn't that be a terrible way to live? And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not living that way. Because of a Bible I hold in my hand, I know what is truth. And I want to give you three answers that Jesus gave to that question. Turn over a page to John 17 and verse 17. John 17 and verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I have no hesitation in saying I hold in my hand this morning a copy of inspired truth. Psalm 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the first year of purified seven times. Psalm 19 and verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of thy word giveth light, O Lord, it giveth understanding unto the simple. Psalm 119, verse 140, thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Psalm 119, verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Proverbs 30 and verse 5, every word of God is true, and he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Jeremiah 23, 24, is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock into pieces. Ladies and gentlemen, I hold in my hand a copy of inspired truth. Now, to me, one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the word of God is the change that takes place in a person's life when he's born again. And this is something that no skeptic can understand, nor can he explain it away. He can't understand how a person may be a drunkard, a prostitute, a whoremonger, go to the Bible and go away a new creature in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 17, so then faith come of a hearing and hearing by the word of God. James 1, 18, of his own will begat he us through the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. In the early 70s, I was in Richmond, Virginia for a meeting. 
Fellowship Baptist Church was pastored by Billy Carl Rice. And uh, in those days, the church was exploding. They were seeing people saved every week, added to the church. And so one night after the Sunday night service, the pastor got his men together and he said, now men, we've got a bill. He said, if we don't bill, we're gonna stymie our growth all of our existence. And the men said, pastor, you're right. They said, why don't we buy up some property surrounding the church and just uh, build upon that? He said, now men, think of that. He said, this community is going down and there will be a time when women won't want to come to this community at night by themselves. He said, I don't think it's wise to buy here. He said, now let me show you what I have in mind. So he took him to a map of Richmond and he said, right here on Lombardum Avenue. At that time, uh, probably the most prominent four-lane highway in the city. He said, there are 10 acres here and God has laid it on my heart to inquire about these 10 acres. They started laughing. They said, Pastor, you don't know who owns that property. They said, why an old God-hater by the name of Mr. Adams owns that property. He's in the Ku Klux Klan. He's living with a woman that's not his wife. He's a blasphemer. He'll never sell us that property. He said, pray for me. I'm going to see him tomorrow. So he went to see Mr. Adams. He said, I'm... Pastor Billy Carl Rice of Fellowship Baptist Church, he said, you know, our church is growing tremendously. We're seeing people saved and added to the church every week. And he said, we've got to build. And Mr. Adams, God has laid on my heart 10 acres of your property here on the Burnham Avenue. He said, now, how much will you sell that to us for? Mr. Adams began to laugh and he said, Pastor, he said, you don't understand early 70s. He said, I was just offered $60,000 for 200 square feet of my property. He said, I'm sorry, but you don't have enough money. Nobody in your church has enough money to buy 10 acres of my property. And the pastor said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna pray about this all week. And he said, Friday, I'm coming back and getting your final answer. He said, Preacher, you're wasting your time. You've already had my final answer. Preacher said, I'll see you on Friday. So he came back on Friday <clears throat> and he said, Mr. Adams, I have prayed about this thing all week. And he said, I am more convinced than ever that God wants us to buy 10 acres of your property here on Libertum Avenue. Now, how much are you gonna sell it to us for? He said, preacher, didn't I tell you you didn't have enough money? Nobody in your church has enough money to buy 10 acres of my property. The only way you can get 10 acres of my property is for me to give it to you. He said, preacher, I'm giving you 10 acres of my property here on Libertum Avenue. You know what happened? The old reprobate got saved. The woman he was living with got saved. They got married. They joined the church. He got out of the Ku Klux Klan. 
he would send tracts all over Richmond, Virginia to black folks. Some of them would get them and say, we don't understand. We thought Mr. Adams hated black folks. He's in the Ku Klux Klan. Some of them know what happened. They say, wait a minute. He's not the same Mr. Adams anymore. He's been born again. The Adams joined that church. I was there for a week of meetings and every time I would pause to take a breath, which wasn't too often, he would let out with a hallelujah, praise God. Hallelujah, praise God. What can do that for a person? Not a sociology book, not a philosophy book, only the Bible, because it is inspired truth. Number one, the Bible is inspired truth. Now take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14. Number two, the Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus said, and I will pray the Father that he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. The Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. John 16 and verse 13, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. First John 5 and verse 6, This is he that came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. It is the spirit that bears witness because the spirit is truth. The Bible is inspired truth. The Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. Now here's an interesting thing. Most of the time in the Bible, whenever you have the word of truth, it's usually accompanied by the spirit of truth. For instance, Genesis 1 and verse 3, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. Genesis 1 and verse 2, and God said, let there be light and there was light. So you have the spirit of truth accompanying the word of truth. You go into the tabernacle in the Old Testament, in the outer court you will see the brazen altar, and then you will see the brazen laver. The water inside the laver is a picture of the Word of God. The laver itself is a picture of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water, the word, and the spirit of God, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the two agents in salvation are the word of God and the spirit of God. And there are two reactions that you can have to the indwelling spirit. Number one, you can receive him. As a 15-year-old boy, I sat in the Asheville, North Carolina Auditorium. It was a citywide meeting. 3,000 people were in that auditorium. Here's an interesting thing. I had sung in the Asheville Auditorium probably uh, 30, 35 times. I was sitting on the back row on a Friday night in the balcony. And the evangelist said, there's a young man in here tonight 
whose God is popularity. He's living for himself. I said, who told him I was here? I had one goal in life, and I didn't care how I was going to get it. I was going to be president of the Asheville High School student body. But that night he said, why don't you quit being your own God? I said, why don't you quit preaching to me? Don't you see these other 3,000 people? He said, swallow your pride and come to Christ. I said, Lord, I can't go. If I go, I'll inhibit my climb up the social ladder. But he said, if you'll take the first step, you'll have no trouble with the second. I took the first step. And I went downstairs. I know that personal worker was glad to get rid of me. I almost drowned him with my tears. You know, for the first time in my life, I saw Ron Comfort as a dirty, filthy, hell-deserving sinner. All of my life, I heard that Jesus died for the world. All of my life, I heard that all men were sinners. But that night, I didn't see all men as sinners. I saw Ron Comfort as a sinner. I didn't see Jesus dying for the world. I saw him dying for me. And that night I was born again. So I prayed to God in earnest and not caring what folks said. I was hungry for salvation. My poor soul, it must be fed. Then at last by faith I touched him and like sparks from smitten steel, just so quick salvation reached me. Oh, bless God, I know it's real. You can receive him this morning or you can resist him. Acts 7 and verse 51, Stephen is being stoned. He said, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so also do ye. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 8, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. I have in my library a book entitled Testimonies of Dying Saints and Dying Sinners. Tremendous book. And it talks about many people just before they cross the river of death they got a glimpse of the hereafter. I read the story of a young lady by the name of Jenny Gordon. Jenny Gordon was a teenager who attended a revival meeting for almost two weeks and did not get saved. On a Friday night, some hoodlums in the community got up a dance for the purpose of breaking up the revival meeting. Instead of going to the revival meeting that Friday night, Jenny Gordon attended the dance. A couple months later, she was on her deathbed, and she looked up at a preacher by the name of Rice, and she said, Pastor Rice, I'm now suffering the agonies of the damned. She said, oh, how I hate him. Why must he always look upon me why must I always see him? She said, don't talk to me about getting saved. I'd rather go to hell than to go to heaven. And the preacher said, Jenny, you can't mean what you're saying. He said, how did you get into such a despairing mood? 
She said it was that fateful Friday night when I attended the dance that was gotten up for the purpose of breaking up the revival meeting. She said that night my heart was so tender I could scarcely keep from crying. But I became so angry that this my last dance would be ruined by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. She said, it was then I drove his spirit from my heart with all my might, and I felt like he had given up on me for all eternity. She said, now preacher, leave. Don't bother to pray. I don't want to be tormented by the sound of your prayers. She said, I'll call for you later on. Got four o'clock in the afternoon and she asked her attendant what time it was when she was told it was four o'clock. She said, oh my, how slowly the hours drag on. This day seems an age. How will I ever endure eternity? At seven o'clock she called for the preacher to come back. He came back and he said, now Jenny, he said, I would like to stand over your casket and tell your friends that in your dying moments you receive Christ. She said, stop it, stop it. My fate is eternally fixed. The fiends, they come, they drag me down. Lost, lost, lost. She whispered as she struggled in the agonies of death. Her dying words, the worm that never dies, the second death. Jenny Gordon's head lay on her pillow, a lifeless form given up by God for all eternity. Now, folks, listen to me. When you leave this building this morning, you will either receive him or you will have resisted him. What a dangerous thing it is. 18 times in the book of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Nine times it says he hardened his own heart. Nine other times it says God hardened his heart. So the Bible is inspired truth. The Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. Now take your Bible and turn to John 14 in verse 6. And you've guessed it. Jesus Christ is incarnate truth. Notice John 14 and verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Look this way. Folks, that is the most narrow dogmatic statement that has ever been made on planet earth. Jesus Christ said he was not a way. He's the only way to heaven. Several years ago when I was still president of ambassador, uh, my wife gave me a book for Father's Day. And uh, it was entitled, An Ordinary Man Who Became an Extraordinary Leader, Ronald Reagan by DeSouza. By the way, you need to get that book. And so when she gave me that book, I thought, I really don't have time to read this book because I've got so much on my plate with the responsibilities of ambassador and then being on the road. But I read the book, and Pastor, I'm glad I did. It was a manual on leadership. 
Uh, I believe every preacher ought to read that book. An Ordinary Man Who Became an Extraordinary Leader. And one of the chapters talked about a Methodist pastor who wrote Ronald Reagan. And he said, President Reagan, I understand that you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He said, I personally don't. I believe that Jesus was a good man, but he was not the Son of God. Reagan wrote him back in his own hand and he said this. He said, Pastor, the thing you have said is very illogical. You said that Jesus was not the Son of God, but he was a good man. He said, that cannot be. Either he was a son of God who he claimed to be, or else he was the greatest imposter that planet Earth has ever known. And I have chosen to believe him as being the son of God. Jesus is incarnate truth. He proved it in three ways in closing. He proved it in his life. In Matthew chapter eight, he is on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was eight miles wide, 17 miles long. In place, it was 200 feet deep or to 150 feet deep. And it was located in such a place below uh, the sea level that many times boisterous waves would come up. We were there at the uh, Sea of Galilee one of the times. I've been to Israel five times. And one of the times I was there, we were getting ready to take a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and the guide said, you can't do it. These boisterous ways would hazard our lives. You see, if you go across the Sea of Galilee, you go early in the morning or late at night because at midday, the boisterous ways would jeopardize your life. And so Jesus is in the boat sleeping. And the boisterous ways begin to come up. And the boat is rocking back and forth with the storm. The disciples push the pilot, uh, the uh, button, panic button. And they came over and woke up Jesus. And they said, Jesus, wake up. Carest thou not that we perish? Now here's something they didn't understand. Nobody ever died in the presence of Jesus Christ. You remember what Mary and Martha said about their brother Lazarus? If Jesus had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. Nobody could die in his presence. So Jesus stood up on the boat and he held out his hand and he said, peace, be still. And those angry waves licked his hand like they were poodle puppies and they said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? He proved it in his life. He proved it in his death. Come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane early in the morning. The Roman soldiers, the high priests and the elders came and they apprehended the Son of God. They took him across the Tyropian Valley to Caiaphas' hall. At Caiaphas' hall, they blindfolded Jesus. And they came to Jesus with the heel of their hand, plummeted him in the face until his eyes were almost swollen out of their sockets. And they said, 
prophesying to us, who was it that slapped you? Wonder what I would look like if every one of you went down the road today and you slapped me as hard as you could. That was true in Jesus' time, but only in mass. And ladies and gentlemen, they took the hair on his face and they plucked out his beard. Isaiah 52, 14 says, he did not even look like a human being. So there, as they finished at Caiaphas' hall, they took him over to Pilate's hall. Pilate didn't want anything to do with him, so he sent him down to Herod's hall and back up to Pilate's hall. Now, folks, he'd already walked. He'd already walked six miles. Uh, he hadn't had anything to eat since the last supper. His eyes had not been closed in sleep. And so when they brought him back to Pilate's hall, Pilate got an idea. He said, if the crowd sees blood, they're gonna let him go and they'll take Barabbas. So they ordered Jesus to be brought forward and they stripped him of his garment. At best, he had a loincloth, at best. Now in the day of Christ, there were two types of scourging. Number one, there was Jewish scourging. In Jewish scourging, they would tie a man's hands to a ring, tie his legs to a ring so he would spread eagle. They would take the leaded whip and beat him 13 times on the right side, 13 times in the center, 13 times on the left side. Jewish law forbade any man to be beaten more than 40 stripes. So they always stopped at 39 to be within the law. But ladies and gentlemen, at Pilate's hall, he was not scourged by Jewish scourging. He was scourged by Roman scourging. That's much more cruel. You know how they did that? They tied his hands to a ring and they let his body dangle. They would take the leaded with the cat of nine tails. Nine strands of leather. On the end of every strand of leather was a place for a three to four inch piece of bone, glass, or metal. And every lash in the victim's body ripped nine strands of skin from his body. You know what that means? If they scourged him five times, they ripped 45 strands of skin from his body. Roman law said, scourge him as many times as you desire. And many times, it was over a hundred times. And they said that after a person was scourged by Roman scourging, it was impossible to look at his body and tell how many lashes he received. Why? Because after Roman scourging, excuse me, his body looked like a piece of raw hamburger. They took the leaded whip and they brought it one, two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, and only God knows how many more times until his entire body was riveted emaciated flesh. See him as he sinks to the ground and his entire body convulsing. They came to Christ with a 160 pound cross piece, not the whole cross, just the cross piece.
They slammed it on his riveted body and now he's to walk another half a mile to Golgotha's brow. Roman law said this, don't let the victim fall beneath the cross. Why? The greatest time of his suffering was to be just before he died. They would come to him with a large mallet and they would break his bones to cause internal bleeding and aid in suffocation and death. Nothing was to supersede that. And the law said that if a soldier lets a victim fall beneath the cross, he's punishable by the law. So in my mind, I can see Jesus staggering toward Golgotha. They came to the brow and they took the 10-inch spikes and pounded it through the heel of the hand, separating the bones, not a bone of him broken. They took his feet and they lapped him over and they pounded the 10-inch spikes through the heel of the foot, fulfilling Genesis 3.15, that the heel of Messiah would be bruised. And then, ladies and gentlemen, they took this mammoth, 250-pound cross, and they slammed it into the pit. And as they slammed it into the pit, the flesh ripped from every wound of Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, the psalmist said in Psalm 22, 16 through 18, that his bones came out of his body and they stared upon him. There was a centurion that stood by his cross for six hours. He saw the darkness over the land from 12 o'clock till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He witnessed the earthquake and the veil of the temple being rent from the top to the bottom. And finally he concluded in Matthew 27, 54, truly, this was the Son of God. He proved it in his life. He proved it in his death. And you've guessed it. He proved it in his resurrection. Romans 1 and verse 4 and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 4 and verse 25 who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. The resurrection of Christ is one of the most provable instances in the entire history of mankind. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he was seen of Peter and the 12 apostles. He was seen after he arose of 500 at one time. He was seen of James and later on of Paul on the road to Damascus. Ladies and gentlemen, he is risen. I stood in 1991 in Tiananmen Square in China and there was the casket of Mao Zedong. You see, they wrote of Mao that whenever he walked among the children, the children were happy. He made the birds to sing. He made the rivers to hum a tomb. And they thought Mao Zedong was immortal. He would never die, but there were his remains. In 1975, my wife and I stood in Moscow. We were there for four and a half days. And ladies and gentlemen, it was blizzard-like weather. The snow was two to three feet deep. And there was a mile-long line waiting to go in front of uh, Lenin. And uh, Lenin, the founder of communism, along with Marx. And ladies and gentlemen, they thought 
Marx was never die and Lenin would never die, but there were his remains. We stood on the other hand in the open tomb of Jerusalem five times. And ladies and gentlemen, there was some commotion going on in that open tomb. We had some North Carolina Baptist preachers with us and they got little Baptecostal in that open tomb. We started singing, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor of the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. In 1815, France and England were at war and all the hopes of England rode on the shoulders of Wellington. The day the battle began, many people stayed in the town square waiting for some news across a building of the battle. And finally, some words appeared and it says, Wellington defeated. Across the fields, there became a fog that nothing else could be read of the message. And the news spread like wildfire throughout the plains and throughout the prairies. Mothers never saw that they'd never see their children again. And the hopes of England were dashed, but there was a little group that stayed in the town square waiting for any more news. Finally, the fog lifted and the remainder of the message could be read. And it read, Wellington defeated Napoleon. One word made all the difference. I want to say for two days and two nights, all the demons of hell laughed and shouted with gallant glee, Jesus defeated. But thank God the third day the message was completed and it said Jesus defeated death. And hallelujah because he arose. One day you will arise in his likeness as you're saved. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.